Escape from Plan A. My father has asked me to be the fourth corner at the Joy Luck Club. I am to replace my mother, whose seat at the Mahjong table has been empty since she died two months ago. My father thinks she was killed by her own thoughts. She had a new idea inside her head, said my father. But before it could come out of her mouth, the thought grew too big and burst. It must have been a very bad idea. The doctor said she died of a cerebral aneurysm. And her friends at the Joy Luck Club said she died just like a rabbit. Hey, welcome back to Escape from Plan A. This is T. Last week's episode was a conversation that I had with Justin Phillip about Jordan Peterson. After we thought the pod was over, we kept talking for a while about race and class in America, and we thought it was a good enough discussion to release as a podcast episode in its own right. Since we're cutting midstream into an ongoing conversation, the context here is a discussion about whether Jordan Peterson and his followers hold any perhaps unstated racial beliefs in common with the alt-right and white nationalist groups. So, so Teen and uh, Philip, so uh, he comes out very strongly against ethno-nationalism, particularly, you know, the alt-right. They, I, people have tried to recruit him in some manner, shape, or form over the years, and he's always come down very harshly. So uh, what, do you, what do you take, I mean, this, I mean, he could throw his weight, he might be throwing his weight behind the scenes, who knows? Uh, it seems unlikely at this point, a little more likely if you say, if what you're saying, Philip, is, turns out to be uh true and that would be a total bummer but he on camry he comes out very strongly against these uh these tribal politics alt-right particularly around race so do you see that as disingenuous or is there a way to square that with what you're saying i think one interesting claim he's uh said publicly is that he's been responsible for pulling back young men from the right the far right right, right. yeah um, I don't know if he also says that to hedge the same issue and it's hard to say because he doesn't talk necessarily directly about race aside from the, the white privilege issue so I don't think he's revealed his full hand yet that's my feeling I think that the alt-right was a loser to begin with there was never any danger that uh, we would move towards uh, broad-based uh, white nationalist uh, politics it's just absolutely ridiculous, and it doesn't serve anybody's interests. It's an emotional, like I said, it's, it's pure pathos. It's 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 just a, a feeling, uh, but there's no there's no substance to that as a movement. And it came about, I think, because there's no power to this movement. Either. There's no power. There's no. Yeah. I mean, there's a they're, loser. Yeah. And I think what he's doing is he's yeah. pulling white guys out of loser movements, and he's re in reinstating, I think, a, a more traditional kind of conservatism to say. When it comes to race, we got to dog whistle, guys. You know, we got to start talking about lobsters and competence hierarchies, you know, and disagreeability and stuff like this. We got to start we got to start smoke screening the shit out of it with 600 page books called Map of Meaning that nobody understands. Everyone reads it. Everyone takes a different meaning from it. He's reintroducing a sort of smoke screen, a sort of cover. Um, he's trying to get and and for the you know, for for most white guys, I feel like. He does just kind of want them to stop thinking about whiteness and just kind of thinking about, I just want to be dominant in my personal realm. And I want to have feel a sense of personal uh, white entitlement. Whereas white nationalism to me is to, I actually, and I know this, is sound, this sounds crazy, but I've always actually been a little bit more sympathetic to it because there was a communal aspect to white nationalism, right? They, it, yeah. was a, it was a communal identity of, white, of whiteness, whereas this classical liberalism, this kind of thing, it's a reassertion of white individualism. And that's why I don't think that this is necessarily getting away from whiteness and white, you know, white privilege and white dominance and all that stuff. It's just 
taking it into an individuated form uh, that where it's like, guys, you're low on the totem pole, but you have to get plugged into the larger system of white hierarchy. But here, here's the thing: if you if you take if you take both of those paths, the alt right path and the like Jordan Peterson youth path or whatever, and you drew them to their logical conclusion, would you get to the same spot, the same conclusion? That's my question. Because you're assuming a nature, a particular uh, nature to whiteness that kind of is a persistent quality. It's not even a variable here. I think there is. I think you can define whiteness. I think you can define it, but you have to define it in the negative. I think whiteness is basically, and it doesn't really correspond with how we use whiteness. I think the, the way that we use it as people is not, it's phenotypical. But there is another concept that I think is emerging that you see in movies like Get Out that it's more kind of a frame of mind. It's not a race. It's a kind of, it is qualitatively different than a race like black, right? Or, or Asian. To me, it's a certain kind of lack, which is your identity with any of those groups. Do you identify with any racial groups? Uh, do you identify as black? Do you identify as Asian? And does that something meaning and communal to you? And if you don't feel any sort of communion with any of those other racial groups, I feel like you're white. And so in a way, I feel like white nationalism and white alt-right identity, white identity was actually a threat to whiteness. Because to me, whiteness was disavowal of... The other checkbox. It's not having to fill that out, period. No, it's not, it's not having to worry about that, that area of the form to begin with. Mm -hmm. You don't have to think about it. You are raceless in that sense. There was a great Eddie Murphy skit that um, really illustrated this. It, it was it was where he, it was like a he he put on white face, and he <laughs> he went around town going as a white guy, and you know he would be on the bus and there would be like one other black guy and then Eddie Murphy with, in his white face and everyone else was white and then when the one black guy got off, um, it, they just had like a white party. They started playing music, right? Like people started they, they broke out. <laughs> The champagne. Then he goes to the bank and the guy's like, you know, the bank officer's giving him a hard time and the manager comes over. He was like, whoa, 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 whoa. We'll handle this man to man. And he's like, take the money. Just take it. Pay us back. Don't pay us. It doesn't matter. And it was this feeling that there was this. It, it was really interesting because I think it, what it set up was like, you know, this, this, this puzzlement about, well, I know what it's like to be black. I know what it's like to be part, you know, of the black race and of the black people. So what is it about, what's the whiteness? How, like, where's the white equivalent to our cult, like our stuff? And he, he said, it must be out of you. It must be hidden because I can't see it. I just see people mm. walking around. They like, they don't know each other. Whereas black people go around, they, they have a sense of, you know, connectedness to each other. And that, I think it just skewered that idea of this minority, this the inability for the racial minority to, to comprehend whiteness as a lack rather than, you know, oh, it's like being Asian except you're white. You know. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can see that. I mean, it'd be it'd be like walking down the street and you see a guy, you think that is a guy, not a Hispanic guy or right. a white guy. That's right. just the archetypal dude. Mm -hmm. I yeah. can I can see that. Yeah. But I mean, uh, in that sense, then don't we want to go with the Jordan, the Jordan B. Peterson version of that, atomizing it down to the individual? In that case, and then whatever aggregate happens, it's uh, race is just one of the variables by which people can aggregate. It's ignoring history and it's ignoring present context, but philosophically speaking, isn't that what we want? Yeah, I don't know, because it still leaves white men on top. Does it? At, 
does it i think the approach is different more more importantly will it because right now we're kind of the way it's constructed the way we talk about it is that there is a clubhouse right and i believe that it does exist don't get me wrong here uh but aren't we break trying to break apart that conception of that clubhouse yeah i mean i think it's a numbers game um i think it's a numbers and wealth and power game and you know without doubt i mean it's not even in question white men as a group I'm not talking about, you know, every white man. I'm talking as a collective. They hold all the chips and all the levers, and that's not changed in the past. You know, having Obama up there didn't change any of that. Um, it the, didn't. The, the amount of property, the amount of wealth, the amount of, you know, institutional positions, all that is still dominated by white men. So I feel like the, you know, that the size of the stack is is paramount to this you know, saying like, let's dissolve the body politic into just, you know, self-interested individuals. And so that none of them can challenge, can, can, because the ultimate challenge to power is going to be that, you know, people get together into groups, which is what we see with the left, right? You're seeing identity politics is the formation of group, you know, group structures that are challenging power and that's threatening. And so I think this is kind of a way to dissolve the left and, and, uh, you know, reduce everyone back into, you know, just, very simple, self-interested, basic, more, more, basically moralistic, hum, you know, beings, human beings. No history, no past. So in that case, uh, then what, how does whiteness factor into that then? I mean, okay, then we're going into, you know, what the, what the, what group politics uh, is for, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's collective bargaining, basically, right? Mm-hmm. As an individual, we accept that we have less per capita power and influence, so we aggregate according to one metric and then push as a group. But it's ultimately to tunnel back to individual benefit. The individual has to benefit for this group politics uh, system to work. But is there so is there so that's the value that I see in being part of this group that it that it confers benefit directly. It promises benefit to me and similar to those like me. Yeah, I think it's the to those like you part that's, you know, I mean, you got to think of, you, you've got to think of... Well, but um, the, the, those hmm. like me, it's to maximize, it's promoting people who are like me because that gives me a higher shot, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's still, it's still focused on the individual, even though it's not about, you know, collectivism versus individualism. That's, that's, that's a, a ridiculous oversimplification. Everything is about individual benefit from the system. So are we trying to uh, reduce white people's collective bargaining power? We're try- ultimately. You mean through? Th- you mean through these kind of things, like through this return yeah. to like, conservatism? I think what we're doing. I mean, no, is I'm, try- I'm talking about is is a critique uh, of this based on the idea that the white clubhouse, that collective bargaining unit, will remain in power while everyone else's collective unit is uh, dissolved. Yeah, I think that's kind of what it is. I mean, because I think it's a direct cha- It's a direct um, address of what's going on on the left, which is the formation of group politics, group identity. And that it's proving to be a very powerful thing. And uh, you you see, um, like if you just look at the way black what voters, what if we redefine the groups? A what if we groups? redefine the groups? Yeah. No, not 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 racial groups here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like going back to that white privilege video, right? Yeah. He dismantles it by dismissing it as a relevant, uh, as a as a brittle and ultimately substanceless metric by which people can be evaluated, right? Uh, and there's some merit to that. He is talking about, when we're talking about white privilege, there's a lot of things rolled up into that. Class privilege. So what if all rich people banded together? Mm-hmm. 
right? Regardless of race, just everyone who's rich band just learns to learns to relate to other rich people in that mm-hmm. same way. Because identity politics, you can you can aggregate based on anything or any combination of metrics, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be race. We chose race in this case to talk about. But I mean, rolled up into white privilege, that's class privilege, right? Definitely. Uh, we're talking about majority privilege. So now we're talking about a numbers game. So are we are we okay at this point with just saying okay let's 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 uh, de-emphasize race and just go by some other combination of metrics here that people can align by? I mean, I don't think so. I, this Philip, this kind of reminds like when when as she's saying this, I do think about like that when we talked about um, ugly delicious, and mm-hmm. it makes me think about how the intangibles. It makes me think about the stuff that is not you know, cannot be quantified into this uh, discussion about like struggles for power. I mean, there are like very human things that don't, that don't factor into that, like personal history, heritage, meaning, authenticity, right? That are really like, really hard baked into the human psyche. And Mm -hmm. I think when we try to just think about this in terms of like power struggles and political power struggles, group identity, class identity, race identity or something and say race is a brittle structure. I think it's incredibly resilient, you know, like black identity in this country is incredibly resilient and it's not just about a communal struggle for power. It's also about, um, you know, personal and family, friends, um, culture, like things that I feel ultimately go to what white people think they're missing which is i think white people in like the white nationalist movement to me came about from a internal backlash against this sort of like hyper individuation you know this this you know and and it's it's paradoxical because i feel like jordan peterson in a way is also kind of railing against uh i don't know uh white people's souls i think are you know not served by whiteness is the problem in in a way that yeah it feels it feels a bit like he's saying like it's okay to be a white individual. Like, yeah, I would say I I would agree with that. Yeah, that that's the that's the meta message being sent out there. Uh huh. Right. You don't have to apologize for it and all this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't have to apologize for it. But I mean, I also do. I also see you know in the pushback against white ethno nationalism, like it's also not enough. Whiteness does not confer by itself anything, and we understand that to be well. There's a Obviously, it's a it's a likelihood, right? It's not an absolute thing that a a white guy will always win over, say, a black guy. We're talking about a sliding scale of likelihoods. Yeah. The white guy is probably going to be able to uh, share cultural cues with those in power to be able to get in with them, and uh, and succeed up that ladder, right? They're relying on an existing white power network to be able to get ahead. Mm-hmm. So sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm just not, overall, I'm just not, not, not sure how comfortable I, like, these racial categories were constructed for us in a, in a large, in a big way here. And I think that's part of the struggle here. Like, do we want to then take that identity, reify that, and then, and then politicize that? These were, these categories were made for us. These little ethnic ghettos? These psychological ethnic ghettos? You're saying we didn't define them ourselves. They were defined we didn't, for us. We did not. Yeah. Like, what is the term Asian American? It has no basis in Asia. Right. It's strictly, it's more American than Asian to have this conception here, really. Well, so is like, black. How then. badly do we want to cling to that? Huh? Well, so is black then. I mean, black. Right. black it is, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and I think there's, especially if you're framing 
uh, white identity equally as a lack as well as a privilege, you do lose a lot in not having to think about being white. But there's black identity. Right? I mean, you don't there get black, that sense. But there is black ethnic identity in America. And it's... it's yes, it, and I think that's... I'm talking about the, the constraints that led to that, right? Having those walls in created as a, as a survival mechanism is a vibrant, strong culture that needed to do that in order to survive. Yeah, and so the question is: Do we dis- do we disband that because it of because of the nature of its origins? I don't think that's no. I doable. no. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not making that argument. I'm just. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, I'm just thinking it through. Right. Well, I think it's relevant really? because Asian Americans are not there yet, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. something that we struggle with as Asian Americans, which is: Do we do we want to accept this? You know, this somewhat. I don't want to say it's completely artificial, but somewhat artificial. Racial categorization. Uh, do we want to kind of bust it and just break break through from this somewhat ridiculous categorization and just pursue our lives as individuals in America free of racial constraints, or do we want to make something meaningful out of it? And I think that what the recent times have shown is that that's not actually the choice. Because there is such a thing as whiteness. There is such a thing as a white identity. And it is specifically like the disavowal of any sort of, you know, uh, there, there's a specific set of attitudes that you have to take in terms of how you relate to, you know, your community and other people, you know. And, for example, you can never talk about race, right? And <laughs> I, I just think that that's something that's like really dividing Asians right now is do you want to assimilate, i.e. do you want to ascend into whiteness, right? Or do you kind of like keep stock and take, take value uh, in being Asian? I think that's a big question because both of them sound kind of iffy in a way. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is a big question. It's not made any easier by the fact that it's not an all or nothing proposition. But I also think that this is the third gen problem. Right? Who was that? Who was that uh, social scientist who talked about studying? I, I think he worked around the turn of the twentieth century to talk about uh, like German, Irish, uh, Scandinavian immigrants to the United States. Talking about this pattern: first gen come, they're rooted in their homelands. Uh, second gen kind of assimilates or pushes hard for assimilation. Third gen, you start to see kind of a quote return to the homeland uh, yeah. sentiment. Like right. becoming prouder of being a German American or an Irish American, etc. Right. So I, I don't think it's an existential question. I think it's a very it's a it's a question rooted in this particular time and place. Given that we're all most of us here are post nineteen sixty five second gens, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're just now starting to to have to have the third gen in this country. So I think it's the, I mean, it's not a coincidence that this is taking on such an urgent tone right now, right when, uh, right when uh, many of us are starting our own families and kind of reaching that point in our lives where you can actually look back and take stock and kind of go through that internal process. Where do you want to be? So I do think there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of pride in being Asian. I don't think it's an all or nothing proposition. I mean, yes, we are on, we are more assimilated than if we were back, back, quote, home. Right. Is that a bad thing? I kind of like having this insider-outsider status. I don't think I'd ever want to be fully insider someplace. And yeah, I don't. I think I'd end up losing a lot more by choosing to be 100% one thing or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. So it's a matter of negotiating the boundaries. Like, what are we defining as white and verboten and what are we embracing? 
I sure like a lot of their stuff. <laughs> right. I don't like the idea of being in an eth- a literal ethnic ghetto, right? Right. Yeah. And there's a freedom. There is a freedom to it. There is a, like this, the, 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 the stress of the individual, there is a freedom to it that is yeah. really refreshing, you know? But yeah. there's a problem. There's, I think there's an inherent problem, which is that, especially on the like sort of liberal white side that, that doesn't, that disavows white identity. Um, if you disavow ethnic identity, your own ethnic identity, I feel like at at the base, as a good liberal, committed, you know, white liberal, committed white liberal, that at the very base, you do have to carry a certain amount of suspicion towards ethnic groups because you see them having the, the same kind of ethnic solidarity that you know is anathema to yourself. You know that like white solidarity is a bad thing. You know you can't have like a white student union. You can't have a white employees meeting. You can't have you know mm-hmm. white. I can't go to a white pride thing. I know that's just bad, but they can go to a black pride thing. They can go have a black black only employees meeting. There's an Asian student union. There's an Asian culture thing. At core, I feel like that paradox never goes away. And with liberal white society that de-emphasizes uh, ethnic. Uh, identity, but sort of that sort of tolerates it and kind of blandly promotes it for minorities in order to make them feel welcome. There is this constant sense of double standards, and it it, it does ultimately lead to a, like unresolvable ethnic resentment, even in the right. Yeah, that is the. Yeah, if we're saying ethnic identity is valuable, carries its own uh, weight and significance for the individuals, then at some point, you're going to have to just let white people have their own white pride uh, movement. I don't, I don't think we're not letting them do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, like forming their own identity then, putting them in their own particular ghetto. That, that, has, to, that has to happen. Mm-hmm. And I also, I don't subscribe to the immediate suspicion that if you let them, if they, if you let them have a clubhouse, they're guaranteed to be at the top. I think we've seen from the alt-right, the people who most, who most want to be in that clubhouse aren't exactly the top dogs. That's true. So, I mean, there's a, that, there's that instinctive recoiling, like, oh, we can't let too many white people in the same building or they're going to take over the planet. I think that's a weird, like, exceptionalism that we're applying to these people. We should have, like, more pods just about, like, this topic of whiteness, because I find it so fascinating. And I rarely hear white people talk about it in a way that's um, compelling, and I rarely actually hear black people talk about it in a way that's that meaningful to me too though that's changing lately um because their their interpretation of whiteness is so tied up in the history and the you know the the specific history of black and white uh of slavery and segregation whereas yeah. with asians i think we're kind of new to the scene relatively speaking uh but, and but the do whole you thing just doesn't asians make much sense hmm? do you hear a lot of asians talking about this topic about whiteness whiteness or even personal identity not enough honestly i think we're talking i think we talk a lot about personal identity but we very rarely talk about whiteness. Um, we talk about how we're not white, but we don't right. really talk about whiteness itself. Because I think it's a really difficult, uh, hard to grasp thing. Because it's not like just the. It's just not. It's not just another race. It has mm-hmm. a special meaning and, and status in its own right and different qualities, and it it just doesn't make much common sense. If we're if we're talking about whiteness as kind of transcending like white people. I think there's an interesting topic there. That that adds a little bit more <laughs> color to the assimilation uh, debate. Nice. Tr- right. Transcending white people as in it's uh it's like a like it, 
con- like we're formulating it as kind of a lack of race, right? Mm-hmm. As yeah. opposed to lack of the need of racial like guardrails or walls, right? Right. As opposed to specifically like Caucasian people from Europe or whatever your definition might be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's an there's an interesting conversation that takes that lends its own kind of shade of meaning to the assimilation debate because yeah. we're not talking about strictly worshiping pale ass people from Europe. Right. 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 You're talking about all these other intersectional aspects like class and majorityism and, you know, all those other things that relate to the privilege. Right. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, we should, that's a really interesting topic. Mm-hmm. 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 And I think one that Asians are in a really good position to actually have a lot to say on. Because uh, yeah. as a class, we're the closest to actually having to make that call. I feel like the door is partially open for us to both being like full fl- full fledged POC and like honorary yeah. white, and yeah. we're constantly navigating that. We're constantly faced with one of those two identities as Asian American, which to me almost defines being Asian American. Is this is this in, is this you know choice of assimilation and and uh, sort of ethnic retrenchment or ethnic identity? ethnic solidarity and but it's only partial like we can never go all the way into either yeah and i think there's a weird amount of sublimation of individual in that in that duality that uh dichotomy there because if uh-huh. you're talking about full assimilation or full full this or full that uh what's that actually mean about you the individual it kind of means you're a massless frictionless object that you yeah. are you know the blank slate in other mm-hmm. words mm-hmm so there's a weird amount of like like self-effacement involved in this question too, even though it's centered around the individual. Right. Default white. Sorry, I was gonna say we can bring in your buddy Zizek. <laughs> He's got things to say about this. Yeah. Um, the way I see it, like the I've noticed that like black people have been having the same debate too. They they actually just straight up call them like the ten percenters or the black professional mm-hmm. class, which is their kind of way of saying like assimilation is black people. And I feel like they're almost they're just like one or two steps away from just calling them straight up white. And you see Asians yeah. now calling people Chan and Lou, which is their way of saying white. And with white, it's the opposite. It's like you have white people and then you have people that say that those other whites are not white. Mm. The white nationalists are like saying they're not white, they're cucks, right? And so yeah. each each race seems to be splitting apart into the assimilationist and the non-assimilationist. But even the whites are calling their own white people assimilationists. So it's like you're, there is this new sort of racial category that mm-hmm. is like just called assimilationist. And then this yeah. other racial category that's like you know, solidarity, ethnic solidarity. And in a way, I think that's... It's like pan-racial versus um, versus pure, not pure blood, but like pure race. The Vogue, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like this sort of multicultural mix and then this sort of like pure race. And I feel like in a way, that's this formation of American class. I think that's, we're getting towards sort of class now. The reason that we can't really find like a real clean class distinction is because I think on the lower end of the, like the lower class is still ethnically balkanized. Yeah. Right? Well, it's the upper class that's yeah, not without its own problems. I mean, that goes to, you know, the topic Philip, you were raising in your piece, even though we are talking about a well-heeled, well-educated, you know, the upper crust of society, mm-hmm. there's still tension there. But I do think, th- like, bringing it back to Jordan Peterson, I don't think the conversation is complete by just talking about race. I think there's a t- conversation about class and how that plays into these divisions, 
right? Who's pure and who's not, who's in and out. Mm -hmm. That's not being had on either side of this aisle. Like, I don't see it in the leftist critique of it. There's a tendency to kind of bulk everyone up, to kind of corral everyone into one, uh, into one pen and then paint them all with the same brush. But I don't think they're going to capture uh, what's going on without that class discussion. Like, I don't know, is this a third rail or something? Nobody talks about it. Like people talk about race now before they talk about class. Uh, yeah, because I think class as a as as a cle- I mean class is basically a cleaver, it's a social cleaver. And I think people avoid it because it tends to uh destroy like hard-fought, hard-won solidarity within yeah. identi- identitarian group movements, right? You see that mm-hmm. with blacks. They're like heavily trying to suppress talk about class distinction because it threatens to destroy the concept of black solidarity. I think when, as Asians, like, you know, we see it all the time. I think a lot of the accusations and a lot of the, the, the bitterness and stuff around interracial relationships, WMAF, yeah. if it, at some level, when you boil it down, it really has to do with class. If you talk about patriarchy, you know, yeah. the escape of male patriarchy, all this stuff boils down to class, if you think about it. Yeah. Well, who's pro-Asian? What's what's labeled pro-Asian, quote-unquote, and what's labeled anti-Asian? Those are also extremely class-based mm. critiques when you boil it down. It's like, if you look, if you just do a quick mm-hmm. survey, pro-Asian is displaying, you know, wealth, status signals, power, right? Talking about, liber- uh, you know, the best case scenarios. Anti-Asian, anything that's not. Mm. So anything that's tinged with hardship, anything like that. They read not based so, in right. the class piece because it's third rail, like it's forbidden for some reason, or is it more so that adding that extra dimension make, takes it from 3D chess to 4D chess? Like it just becomes so much harder to reason. Yeah, it's it's two dimen- it's two variable calculus uh, math with only one equation, yeah, right? It's, it's, we don't have enough to solve it. <laughs> no one likes to do that kind of math. Right. And it's unsolvable right now, I think. But, but I mean, and if you, we can't balkanize by class. No. Like right now, that as a numbers game, you just it's not strategically sound. Everyone gets that, and that's why everyone doesn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I think it complicates it complicates race. But yeah, it, it does. But it simplifies whiteness, if you ask me. I think whiteness is such a conundrum. White, as as formulated now, is forty chess. I think if you bring class into mm-hmm. it, you complicate ethnicity you got you complicate minority ethnicity but you simplify race in a way and you start to see that you know you look at the way black people talk about whiteness they'll say stuff like the right articles like it won't be about people it'll be about an activity or a preference and they'll say this is the whitest shit ever they're they're starting to see that white has to do with preferences lifestyles predilections attitudes ideas rather than white skin and to me, those are sort of like what they're doing is they're sort of earmarking stuff to say, as a black person, you don't, you can't really engage in this kind of ideology. It's, a, it's an ideological construct to say this, you know, uh, playing this sport, liking this team, saying these, having these kinds of ideas is white and it's, they're not suitable for black people. So to me, it's a, it's, it's, it's actually the minority groups that are trying to suppress class. Uncomfortable um, conclusion because that puts me into the same league as people uh, into into the same uh, camp as people like Mark Lilla, um, who I despise. Um, but I think he is yeah. actually onto and we something. We have we have many uh, we have many variables: gender, yeah, right, race, class, gender. Now we're talking about three variable uh, algebra mm-hmm. with only one equation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, but you know the 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 thing the thing that Mark Lilla would never 
that white liberals that see this don't will never understand is that in order to form the class distinction in the U.S., you have to allow for white nation white nationalist white. politics. You have to make that an acceptable identity in America. You got to let hillbilly pride run run so that everyone can because be divided you need by there to class. be a white underclass. Otherwise, you're missing something. Well, you can't have a class. You can't have a class distinction that basically like takes. Mm-hmm. It, like to say, okay, there's a multicultural, <laughs> multi-ethnic upper class, and then all white people, right? You can't have that. It has to be there. Has to be the multicultural elite liberal class, and then everyone yeah, else. But in that everyone else, the there has to be white. There has to be a white underclass. Yeah. But the problem is, you. Know, uh, but that underclass is racially balkanized, and there's not going to be any change to that, you know, um, anytime soon. So you do, if you want to have the four, if you want to have class distinctions, I think you have to cleave whiteness into two to, for there to be this upper globalist white guy. And then your, your, your Southern, your, you know, your good old boy Hick. And you got to let that good old boy Hick, uh, you got to let his red, white, and blue, you know, run, run, uh, run proud, run proud, brother, because without him, you can't have class distinction. I think that's kind of the uncomfortable truth. I, I think that exists. I think those concepts exist already to some extent because I think at least liberals like to keep on this idea of like there are good whites like accepting you know non-racist whites and then the bad whites right the racist ones the rednecks those stereotype Philip have you seen that four hour Richard Spencer uh, thing the debate <laughs> the crazy that debate de- where Sargon I don't want to call it a debate because it really wasn't a debate I did not. I, I know of it. I did not watch it because it was four hours long. Okay, it's it's. I I really think it's worth a watch at some point. You you said you've seen it like twice or something. Yeah, <laughs> I am not afraid of the alt right after this. How how about that? Mm, interesting. That is yeah. that is enticing. I'm more afraid of the classical liberals because they're they're trying to smokescreen whiteness again, and they're you know to me it's like when i saw the alt right and i saw the pe- what they really were who richard spencer really was i was like you know you could have a future where like red rednecks redneck white people like lived in solidarity with like you know poor black people working class black people in their mutual disdain for liberal liberal elites and the poor black people and the working class black people totally had it out for all those black 10 percenters the black professional class and the white working class was like, oh, tell me about that shit. I hate, you know, liberal white people who hold those ideas. And they they wouldn't have to hate each other. They would have their object of of scorn, right? Black people would have their class distinction. White people would have their class distinction. Asians, we would have our own class distinction too. And maybe that's what you need. Maybe what you need is each each ethnic group has to be allowed to split and have their own class conflict, and white people have to be allowed to do it too, you know? Yeah. I think that's kind of where we have to go. Yeah, if you if you watch that four-hour thing, a, lo- a lot of things can be distilled down. One of the things is, uh, one of the pillars of ethno white ethno-nationalism is the anger that uh, white people at the top, who are acknowledged to be in power, and rightfully so in their opinion, sold them out. So it's yes. the idea, it's this fantasy that if they were allowed to retrench, if they were allowed to, I don't know, take over the Dakotas or something in Nebraska, mm-hmm. if they mm-hmm. were allowed to 
separate and retrench, they would again emerge as the leaders. That's always assumed. It's always a hilarious mm-hmm. assumption, but they're just assuming uh, that this tri-state of area of trailer parks is going to resume its rightful place in the uh, global pantheon as a global power of itself. So white power is assumed. Competence is assumed. That's interesting, you know, because I totally agree because Steve Bannon was going around, you know, I was saying that Steve Bannon was painting China as the foreign bogeyman, but his message was a little bit more sophisticated than that. It wasn't that China was evil, and Trump doesn't say that either. It's that China is opportunistic, and your white elites got in bed with them to get rich off your back. China's just doing what China's going to do. It's your leaders who allowed them to profit off you, steal your job, you know, sell you yeah. stuff. And the the message has always been, look, like China is just background threat. They're always a threat. But it's your white leaders that sold you but out. But it's the people them. in power letting them in. Yeah. The gatekeepers here who are willingly and happily and profitably selling you out. Those are the real problems. But and this is why we need to retrench. End of the day, though, the problems. End of the day, the net result is still they're going to hate the white elite and they're still going to hate the Chinese. At the end of the day, in practical day-to-day terms, yeah, that's that is what it yeah. that it that is what it is. The problem is that white the white underclass is so infected with racism that they that it's it's really they're going to be really bad roommates. <laughs> yeah. In in the American lower class, that's the problem is that they're so tainted as people that it, like I just don't see how we're going to get there. But that's if there was a way forward in terms of like you know having american society remade along like proper class lines like that's clearly what we want like clearly like people are saying like this huge inequality gap needs to be addressed in order to do that you need to have proper class-based politics and but we can't do it because the white underclass is so fucking racist that nobody trusts them yeah so if if that underclass saw that white privilege video that Jordan Peterson put out and actually accepted it for the message that it is instead of what they want. I mean, they had a really simplistic interpretation of that, which is just, yeah, of course, white privilege doesn't exist. It's a little more sophisticated than that. That's actually giving them the tools to align based on more effective identity groups. Yes, but the problem is that Jordan Peterson is 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 vague enough that the white elites could come back and hide into him. And I saw the New Yorker write a nice little piece about him too, an elitist magazine. I think that the the elite whites see Jordan Peterson, they're like, you know what, we're going to have to get in on this. We're going to have to take a, we have to take control of this. So let's accept, let's bring them in. You know, I think, I I don't see in Jordan Peterson a real class-based working man, you know, disdain for, you know, the elites. He doesn't talk about that stuff. He doesn't well, talk I about mean, inequality he has ever. Very healthy disdain for communism. Class conflict exactly. is a central pillar of that ideology. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, he's okay with hierarchies, in other words. That's anathema to the left, but I think that is also an issue that needs to be addressed. Are hierarchies inevitable? Um, my my personally, my suspicion is yes. There are there are hierarchies in nature and society. This is human nature. This is uh, this is just how it shakes out. All we're actually doing is talking about who belongs where on this hierarchy, but without actually addressing the fact that we are still okay with the hierarchy. Uh, you know, I I come down. I I you and I always will agree on this, which is that ultimately, you know, I here I I do agree with. I don't know if I agree with him, but I over I would overlap with his view on this. Is like this piecemeal demand for 
identity representation up top doesn't really buy you much. Um, there are countries that have female heads of state, and it, you don't really get necessarily any better results for women. Um, and I, I just don't think that this project of stacking the, the elite with uh, diversity is going to do it. Uh, what I think you need to do is you need to make white people vote their actual interests, and you need to make white people vote in ways that will benefit themselves, which is what they never do. The poor whites keep voting for tax cuts. You know, the po poor whites keep denying themselves health care. And it's just, it's, it's been, they're so infected with this ideology that if, if they really want to blame, if the Mark Lillas of the world really want to blame, uh, uh, you know, where this failure of finding um, class solidarity lays, it's in racism. It's not in identity politics. It's not in the reaction to racism. It's in racism because white people won't properly vote on close on class lines. You know, they will vote against their own interests in support of ideologies. Yeah, that was a carefully crafted Republican strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Southern strategy. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, this is again white people on white people. <laughs> white on white crime. Mm -hmm. It's white on white crime is what it is. Yeah, totally. Uh, they're being bamboozled. Um, and God, you know, it's so uncomfortable talking about it because you ultimately do have to show some level of sympathy to the Bannonites. It, you know, it's, it's really weird. It puts you in this really weird bind as to, uh, you know, who to support. I, I don't support Bannon, of course, but I'm just like, you gotta think about what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you have to I mean, think about see, what he's saying. You have to take him seriously. You see some hicks being all like, yeah, fuck yeah, at him and his mess. And you're like, dude. Oh, damn. I would I would try to help you, but I don't give a shit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're, I don't trust you, man. You know, like... <laughs> but it's like, dude, dude. Okay. <laughs> All right, do yeah. you, man. No, I, I get it. Yeah. Um. Okay. Dude, I almost feel like that last, like, 20, 30 minutes was better than the first part. <laughs> <laughs> man. Yeah, reconfigure that. I, I, it was a cool conversation. I, I still kept recording. I, I, I want to add that later part. Yeah, I want to yeah. add that later part. Like, cut it. Like, it almost could be a separate pod if it came to it. Could be. Could you cut, yeah. like, yeah. a 30 minute special? Joyluck was an idea my mother remembered from the days of her first marriage in Guilin before the Japanese came. That's why I think of Joyluck as her Guilin story. It was the story she would always tell me when she was bored. When there was nothing to do, when every bowl had been washed and the formica table had been wiped down twice, when my father sat reading the newspaper and smoking one Pall Mall cigarette after another, a warning not to disturb him.